Welcome to the Lively Joy Podcast. Learn how to live your best life with host Sherry McDonald. She believes that every person has the right to be healthy and have a life that they love. Sherry, along with her guest, will help you live your best life by talking about everything from the latest health topics, how to find your passion, longevity, so you can live your best life longer, shifting your mindset, and more. And now, your host, Sherry. Hey, friends. I hope you're having a great day today. Our guest today is with Patty Shipley, and you're going to want to take notes, so get out a pen and paper. Patty Shipley grew into Leaves of Wildlife, her native nursery that she has in Sunbury, Ohio, through a lifelong love of nature and gardening, as well as through her career as a natural health care provider. Patty's integrative wellness practice, Leaves of Life, inspired her to find a way to contribute to improving the environment as a means of preventing and reversing human illness. Patty firmly believes that human health and environmental health are connected. The nursery is her way of stepping back from the smaller picture of helping people one at a time into a bigger picture picture of recognizing that many chronic illnesses are environmentally driven. So I hope you get a lot out of this, Patty. um, I've known Patty for a long time, and this is her second podcast with Lively Joy. So enjoy. Well, hello, Patty. It's good to have you on the podcast again. I wanted to tell you that to date, your podcast that you did last time is still my most popular podcast. Oh, that's great. It's so wonderful to see people interested in helping nature. You know, I, I bought the property I live on. I live on 10 acres in Sunbury, Ohio. And when I bought this property eight years ago, I was thinking that I was rewilding it by taking all these plants that I saw making babies of themselves and spreading around. So I was thinking 10 acres, I can't afford to, you know, plant that with retail priced plants. Um, so I was getting some things from the nurseries, but then supplementing by burning, burning, <laughs> moving my burning bushes and my Rosa Sharon and my calorie pears, you know, around the property. Oh, I shudder to think of that. And I had to go back and undo all that because I just didn't know that those were all invasive plants that are taking over wild spaces. So, you know, and I, and when I learned about, you know, what I'm kind of sharing with others now is it, it was just such a a light went on, you know, it was just such a sea change in my thought process. And I thought, you know, I know there's lots of other gardeners and nature lovers who would love to know how to do this right. Like, I think we spend a lot of time, many of us spend a lot of time in our gardens, money at gardening stores and nurseries. And, you know, are we having a net positive, a net negative or a net neutral effect? And I I really definitely want to have a net positive effect in what I'm doing. So um, in 2019, I read a book written by an entomologist who explained the, the importance of planting native plants, why it was important. And it was a light bulb went on. And, and I thought, this is what I want to do. So I know you and I have talked about how being in practice, you know, natural health care, um, it's, it's a wonderful, um, purposeful, uh, rewarding uh, job. But at the same time, um, it can, it can get to be a bit much. And I kind of started feeling like, you know, nature needed my help, you know, more. And I wanted to kind of focus more on that and be outside more instead of being on my computer. So you, you're settling in, you're settling in there in Sedona and really loving it. Oh my gosh. Yes. We love it. We love being outside more, even though it's going to be in the hundreds this week. Oh yeah. (laughs) And even today it's going to be a hundred, 
but um but we you know we're outside a lot like we did a bunch of yard work this morning which is I, I it's so funny because you know you talk about the grass and and you know all that and we don't have any grass and I thought wow we're not gonna have to do anything in the yard but we had a patio put in and where we have this gravel that they brought in and didn't take out we have you know different things that you have to do in your yard but it still isn't as hard to keep up with as you know people that have grass so, and I'm thankful that we don't have grass because, um, you know, the, you do see some people in Arizona that have grass, but then they have to constantly water it. So that's not good either. So yeah, our, our yard is kind of like the forest. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. that's really cool. I, I kind of, I, I'm working on shrinking my grass here less and less every year. You mentioned a book about uh, native plants. Uh, who wrote that book? Yeah. The, the book that I read was called Bringing Nature Home and it was written by Douglas Tallamy. He's an, um, an, he's an entomologist and he heads the wildlife ecology department at uh, University of Delaware. Okay. And he, um, he just got last year the um, Leadership and Conservation Award, very, very highly deserved. I think he's written his fifth book now. It's aimed toward children. Helping oh, children, yeah, understand the importance of you know, preserving nature. But yeah, he, he bought 10 acres in Pennsylvania and about 20 years ago, maybe give or take a couple years, and he was, um, he's basically already kind of understood about native plants to a degree. So he was taking out invasive stuff and putting in natives. It was just a big farm field that had a bunch of, you know, invasive stuff come in. And so he's been doing that for 20 years and chronicling all the different species that he sees on his property and, and talking about how, you know, each plant he adds brings more diversity and more things that he's not seen before. But he noticed that when he compared the native plants to the plants in the yard next to his um, that was full of you know plants from other countries that the insects weren't using those other plants they just haven't they can't get around the plant defenses you know even even humans I know you're you're probably familiar with oxalates and you yeah. know some of the different plant components that we humans can be plagued by if we overconsume certain plants um, insects are much smaller so you know if their whole diet is one type of plant if it's got chemicals in it that are toxic to it, they can't eat it. So, you know, like monarchs and milkweed, everybody knows that example, but that's just one of many, many, many um, different plant and uh, wildlife plant associations. And there's, there's just a lot of examples of that. So yeah, I read that book in, in the fall of 2019 and I had already been feeling like I wanted to do something different, but I didn't know what, you know, I didn't really feel like I had skills to do anything different. Um, but when I read that book, I thought, this is exactly why I'm on my, on my property. Yeah. I'm on this 10 acres that ha I have plenty of space for propagation. I need a lot of plants myself. And I thought, you know, if I start a nursery, a native plant nursery, and it doesn't go, then I'll have a lot of plants that I can plant here for myself. You know, so I felt like, <laughs> I okay, okay, it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's, that's just what I'm going to do. I'm going to try it. And I've, I've always been good at propagating and gardening. And it just kind of comes naturally because I've been gardening since I could walk. So yeah, I just got started and um, there's a newer, um, more updated version of that book now called Nature's Best Hope. Um, I think I have that one. Yeah, that's a really good one. I don't know. I'm sure you probably haven't had time to sit down and read yet with your big move and all this settling and everything, but I highly recommend it when you get time. It goes quickly. It's, it's just really well written. It's, very, it's entertaining. It's informative. It's easily understood. Um, really his, his I don't know he's he's an incredible human being in my opinion um, 
So, so yeah, that's kind of what I did. I started um, doing raising native plants. And what I'm seeing is that, you know, even the people that come here to shop and, and that work here, it seems like everyone's lives are improved by being around nature. And, and there's a lot of research that bears that out as well. And so one of the things we wanted to talk about today was just living your best life with native plants because adding them just brings so many layers of benefits. So I thought we'd maybe talk through some of those um, benefits. Um, one of the things I think about here is you know, we've got Intel coming in, I think it's 11 miles from where I'm at right now. And so there's going to be, well, there's already a lot of change happening now and, and it's going to continue. So I feel like it's even more important to think about this type of thing, putting back habitat. Um, because, you know, what happens to nature happens to us, spoiler alert. I mean, that's just, that's just the truth. Um, we rely on the same ecosystems that nature helps to sustain. So I kind of think about in my, on my property, planting trees all around the perimeter as kind of like a pollution barrier, you know, the, the cars going by and, you know, industry that's going to be in the area. And, you know, there's a lot of farm fields around here, you know, those are sprayed and, you know, fertilized and, and you know, all that. So just kind of having a barrier around my property. Um, and it also kind of deadens the noise from the traffic. Um, but, you know, plants, they, they fight or remediate, they, they clean up the air, they clean up the soil, they clean up the water, um, the, you know, trees create oxygen for us to breathe. I saw something on Facebook the other day. It was, um, if trees gave us Wi-Fi, we would plant them everywhere, but they just <laughs> give us the oxygen that we breathe. <laughs> it's uh, kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I like what you said about the tree uh, canopy that shades the ground to cool the earth which makes the air conditioning more efficient. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it also, you know, trees help with the heating in the winter too, with the wind, they kind of break oh, yeah. the wind a little bit. So it does make HVAC more, more efficient. And it's also more inviting when we have such a lot, you know, the summers are a lot hotter than they used to be. I mean, and for longer periods of time, I remember when I used to not have to wear, not, not have to turn my air conditioning on for, you know, I, maybe two weeks during the summer, like that was the most. And sometimes I could get a, get away with not using it at all. But uh, nowadays, I mean, it, most people use their air conditioning throughout the summer. And I use it quite a bit of the summer myself now because it's, it's you know, I can't sleep at night because it's just too hot. Yeah. And I think so, it's more humid than it used to be in Columbus. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's, that's one weird. of the things that's, is that, is that the same for you in Sedona? Do you know? Do, you it's guys very dry. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because we're supposed to get, I mean, what, what we're seeing change here in our climate is more precipitation, you know, and I see, I see that in my practice with pa more patients having mold illness. Oh you know? yeah. And that For was sure. one of the things that I had problems with, with mold and with being, you know, in Columbus, I felt like that hopefully being out here will help me because in Columbus, there was a lot of mold and even, you know, in our house and you know dampness in the house and stuff so i think um out here it's very dry so it's kind of completely yeah. and even though this spring it was very cool compared to even columbus and it was very rainy this spring so more rain than they had in a long time oh but so that was atypical but we've been here since the middle of april and it's only rained twice hmm so and sunny every day and and now it's getting really hot, which is unusual for June. You know, um, Phoenix gets a lot hotter than it does here, but 
Yeah. It's um, it's going to be in the hundreds this week. So <laughs> I heard that there was air conditioning. Yeah, I heard there was some some heat wave coming across a lot of the country. Yeah. You know, another thing that I've noticed is, and this is you know good and bad. I mean. The, the ground doesn't really freeze in the winter here in Ohio almost at all now. If it does, it's really brief. Um, yeah. We had that um, that uh, downturn that we had this past winter. Um, so it froze then, but otherwise I planted all the way through, you know, to like February. Oh, I wow. planted yeah. trees and shrubs, you know, cause that's the best time to plant woody plants is in the fall and winter. Um, they are dormant. They don't lose the moisture through the leaves and, they're established by the time summer's heat comes when you get them in that early. So yeah, that's what I, I do in the winter. The, I mean, that's the, that's the positive side. The downside is my pond doesn't freeze and that's how I maintain my wood duck boxes. <laughs> so, you know, I can't get out there and, and install a new one or do repairs as easily because of the, because of the, you know, pond when it's frozen, it's just a lot easier to do than it is from a boat. Oh, sure. So but, you know, so <clears throat> we were talking last time about, you know, so aside from creating that, you know, hedge around, you know, kind of like a, a pollution barrier or a privacy screen, making your HVAC more, you know, efficient. And some of the other health benefits of having nature up close, you know, many people don't have the time to go to wild spaces, you know, very often. And there's so many research studies showing that even just being near a green space um, and more so walking into a green space. And even more so if you're doing that in a mindful way, there's a lot of health benefits, you know, diabetes and cancer and heart disease and ADD and anxiety and depression and insomnia, lots of things, lots of conditions that are benefited by spending, you know, time in nature. And then, you know, seeing that there's a lower incidence of some of these uh, conditions when you live near a green space tells you right there that those plants are um, contributing to the environment in a way other than just calming the nervous system. Um, and we know about phytoncides. We talked a little bit about phytoncides last time. Those are the essential oils or like a, a compound that the plant puts out into the air um, that we breathe in. And it, they do that for their own defense system, but it helps our defense system, our immune system um, to fight infection and, and fight cancer and, and all that. So, you know, and, and then um, patients in a hospital that have a view of nature, you know, they spend less time in the hospital, they, they heal more quickly. And I think as a, you know, as a species, we already kind of know we're drawn to wild spaces a little bit. Like if we had a choice of a restaurant with a beautiful view of nature okay. versus one that had no windows at all, you know, you're going to pay more for the meal in that restaurant that has that beautiful view. You know, apartments with a balcony are going to be more expensive than one without. You know, there's there's lots of things, and I know real estate agents will tell you that your property is going to be worth fifteen percent, give or take more, if you have some mature trees and shrubs instead of just a big lawn. You know, so lots of benefits to um, to us. And then I always think about too the time that we spend. Um, maintaining a grass lawn because it's not that easy to maintain. Like you said, in Sedona, it's probably way harder, you know, with, you'd have to water it pretty frequently, right. um, which seems like such a waste of resources um, and time. But, you know, what we're doing here is we're mowing it and we're, you know, we're putting chemicals on it to keep the, you know, to keep it green and keep it, you know, weed free and all those chemicals end up washing into the waterways, you know, that we all get our water supply from. 
and the, and where amphibians are uh, particularly vulnerable because they're so absorbent. Um, but yeah, so those are things, you know, we're spending all that time and money. I know when I bought my eight acres, the woman that owned it before me was spending six hours a week mowing. And I thought, I do not need to walk <laughs> on all of that grass. And if I don't need to walk on it, why do I need to mow it? You know, exactly. And, and it's the, the, co the cost of the gas. I mean, that's gone way up, you know. So, so I like the idea of creating habitat for many reasons, but that's, those are some of the really key reasons that, you know, I think that people should think about how it benefits them um, and bringing nature up close. You can have your own personal relationship with nature anytime you have the time. You don't have to wait until there's a park that's open or, you know, wait till you have time to drive somewhere. It's just right there. And then you can also share that with all the children in your life. And I, I think it's really important that we interest the, the younger generation in caring about nature because they're our next generation of conservationists. Yeah. If we, if we, if we um, cultivate that. Yeah. And so, I think what you said about uh, pets as well, people probably don't think about their pets or walking across their lawns and getting that pesticide on their feet and bringing it into their house and they're getting getting it that way too plus well, they're making their pets sick look at all the cancer in animals now i was getting ready to say that yes that's absolutely true yeah they it has to affect them they're down so low and they're yeah. getting a much bigger dose of it than we are and they're smaller so and children too if yeah, if, exactly. if kids even play on the lawns anymore i hardly ever see that anymore um there's also a there's a, a friend of mine his name is tyler freisinger he is local. I think he's um, taking care of Columbus and Delaware County, like Franklin and Delaware County, both, uh, and maybe some other local um, counties. But he has a company called Strata Eco Solutions, where he does natural lawn care for the people that want to maintain some lawn. He helps them do that without all the chemicals. So that's a really, um, I, I refer people his direction when they want to maintain that lawn, because if you're going to do it, at least do it in a natural way. So you're not adding to the pollution in your family members, your pets in the waterways. Um, so I can, if you can send me that information, I'll put in the, in the show notes. Oh anyway. yeah, I'll do that. Absolutely. That's a good idea. Um, and then, you know, in general, right now we are, we're living in the sixth extinction. The sixth extinction is well underway at this moment. And five times previously in the fossil record, you know, most of life on earth crashed and came back in a different form. And, and that's what's gonna happen here. And we don't know what that's gonna look like. And we don't know if we'll be among the species to survive that. Um, I don't think anybody can really properly predict that at this moment, but we are losing the little things that run the world. And, and that's, that's a, uh, a phrase that came from E.O. Wilson. He, was, he passed not too long ago, but he was considered one of the greatest naturalists of our time. He, um, he basically was saying, you know, we're, we're losing insects and, and that's incredibly um, impactful on not just wildlife, but also humans because insects do so many things for us that we don't really think about. And I think we poison them and, and, you know, catch them in zappers and squash them. And, and we don't really have a respect for the fact that there's a whole web of things that come from insects. You know, all the things that we enjoy seeing in nature come either from plants, mostly native, um, or insects that can eat those native plants. Um, we have deep decomposing insects and fungi. I mean, if something dies or someone dies and we didn't have decomposers, then eventually the world would just be littered with all this dead stuff, you know? 
So those are extremely important. You know, one of the things that I came across recently was, um, are you familiar with pill bugs? Remember the roly polies? Oh, oh yeah, 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 I do. Yeah, I know. People are. call them salad bugs. Yeah. I don't know where that term came from, but um, yeah, I used to love playing with them because you pick them up and they roll <laughs> into a little ball. <laughs> but a lot of people are, you know, grossed out by them. You know, I think there, there's a, I forget what there's a, there's a name for them that is like louse or soil lice or something like that. But I always thought they were kind of cool, but they actually have a kind of gut bacteria that they can, um, they use those to help remediate heavy metals from the soil. They're able to take that in and turn it into some type of a more stable compound in their, in their gut because of their gut flora. Um, so they can help to clean the soil and which keeps it from, you know, contaminating the groundwater. Um, I think that after they do that, they have to take them away, but because, you know, then, then they contain that heavy metal, even though it is in a more stable form. But um, so, so that's kind of interesting. And I'm sure there's a million other things like that. We, we still don't really truly understand. Um, but insects are also, um, they pollinate, you know, 85% of the flowering plants on earth require insect pollination. Um, you can usually tell which plants require that because the, the, those, the flowers are a little more showy and they, they do that to attract the insects. If the, if the flowers are smaller and more inconspicuous, not really that attractive, then they're probably wind pollinated. Um, even though insects can increase that um, efficiency. Um, but yeah, seeds, fruits, vegetables, um, two out of three bites of the food that we eat, I hear, you know, different, different, you know, numbers on that. But a lot of the food we eat is, you know, reliant on insect pollination. And people think about honeybees, but honeybees are actually from Europe. Uh, we brought those here because we wanted the honey. You know, most of our native bees you know, they don't make anything that we can harvest from them. So we don't think about them because, you know, we don't, we don't make that direct association between what they're doing for us. But, you know, like bumblebees are our, our native bumblebees. They do buzz pollination, which is much more efficient than honeybee pollination. Um, and they're the ones, our native, our native pollinators are the ones that are actually really of biggest concern because um, honeybees don't actually, you know, they're not actually native here. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I used to be a beekeeper and I didn't realize that myself. Um, and I remember when I would be like, I want to get a wild hive. I want to get one some out of a, a hollow tree, you know. Well, they're <laughs> they're all from Europe. So, uh -huh. yeah, I, I did actually um, climb a ladder up to a, a tree, a limb on a tree that was over. It was taller than this person's house. And I used a vacuum to suck up this this uh, colony of bees that were there. And I thought, I got some wild bees. No, I, I got somebody's swarm that came off their hive is what I got. Oh my God. I didn't understand it at the time. Um, but, you know, there's, you know, so there's pollinators. There's also um, Lepidoptera, which are the, the moss and butterflies. Um, they do some pollination, but the, a bigger uh, contribution to um, our ecosystems is, the, is their caterpillars. Their caterpillars are, um, the drivers of the birds, you know, the most 90, more than 90% of our uh, terrestrial birds um, feed their young caterpillars in the nest. And they feed them insects in general, but think about the difference between like a, a, a spider, um, a fly, a gnat, um, you know, grasshopper that has the legs that are, it doesn't have a lot of, you know, um, edible parts to it. 
think about the difference between caterpillars versus these other insects that would take a lot more energy to chase down and don't provide as much nutrition. And then if you look at them, you know, Douglas, tell me one of the things he talks about is the difference between um, all the insects and the, in, and the nutrients they provide. Uh, caterpillars are a lot more, uh, they have a lot more of the nutrients that birds need for breeding and plumage and, you know, some of their different processes. So that's, you know, that's another big contribution to us. And we, we don't think of them as being directly connected to us, but they're just part of that ecosystem. They drive that ecosystem forward. Um, and caterpillars are, I think of them like nature's hot dogs. So <laughs> not I the did, hot dogs are healthy to eat. <laughs> right. I, I did something last week that you would probably be interested in. I joined, um, as soon as I got here, I joined Friends of the Forest. And yeah. so I'm a volunteer. And what we do is everything that the Red Rock uh, Forest Rangers tell us to do. And That's great. We, yeah, there's different committees and I'm on like five different committees. And one of them, we went, um, we drove, it's probably about a half an hour away. And then we had to go down a dirt road that, that was only one lane for another 15 miles to get to, it's called Fossil Creek. But we went to, um, to find fireflies. So there was like five different groups of two people. So we just went in different locations by the creek and um, we had a, a net and a, a little jar. And then we were supposed to try to get two male fireflies. But um, we, there's out of all of us, only one person seen one firefly and he couldn't get it. Um, and we we were there for a little while, but it was kind of fun just, you know, hanging out there and they're, you know, they were talking about how they come up out of the ground. And I'm like, I had no idea. I never even really thought where does a firefly come from, but they come up out of the ground and the female stays on the grass and then the male comes up and flies around. And it was just really interesting mm. to learn that. So I'm learning a lot of different things about, you know, the environment and the insects and different things um, just from being out here and having more time to take classes and to learn. So well, that's it's, great. it's very interesting. I can't wait to see how you jump in and get involved because I just know you will. And yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy hearing about that. Um, yeah. yeah, we've for some reason this year, I've never noticed these before, except here and there. But this year, there's a lot of black fireflies flying around during the day um, in the nursery. I wasn't sure what they were, but then one of the kids that works with me, he got his phone out and got his app out and looked, and that's what it was. It was a black firefly, but they're flying all over the place. So there's a bumper crop of those this year, at least in my area. Um, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of insects and in, in wildlife in general will have boom and bust years for different reasons. You know, food's plentiful, the temperature, yeah. the conditions are right. right. But something made them happy this year. I don't know what oh, it was. Wow. But to but, see them know. in the daytime, do they light up in the daytime? Uh, no, they don't. And oh. in fact, I, I didn't think they were fireflies at first because you didn't see like that obvious little yellow butt, you know, that you see mm -hmm. on, a, on the traditional fireflies. But uh, there are lots of species of fireflies, and I didn't yeah. realize that until recently as I was starting to kind of learn more about insects. But, um, but you know, I my biggest focus right now is on the moss and butterflies just because there's something that's really easy to share with people. Like I have right now in the nursery, I have the, the um, caterpillars of the giant swallowtail, which are a bird poop mimic. Um, yeah. And then I also have caterpillars that are either, they look so much alike, I'm not sure, I'm not uh, practiced enough to tell between the viceroy which looks a lot like a monarch and the red admiral their caterpillars look they're like a green bird poop mimic 
Um, and then I also have Luna moth caterpillars. They're about ready to go into cocoon because they're about a little over two inches long right now. They're big. Um, and then I have some eggs from Cecropia moss that will hatch in the next couple of days. And I have those protected in sleeves on different trees. So people can make that host plant association in between this is the plant that the caterpillar eats and you know this is this is what it needs um i also have spice bush swallowtail caterpillar right now that's just I, those are my favorite they, they're a green snake mimic they're super cute oh wow yeah i would love did you I, did you post some on facebook i might have seen some on facebook. yeah i haven't posted this past week I, I was doing plants and things like that but i need to do that i did put up a polyphemus not too long ago because um, that was one that we had to um, I had some stuff that had just closed from, um, from some cocoons I overwintered. Um, so that's been really fun. And, you know, when you're talking about caterpillars, one thing that people think of butterflies, but, you know, 90% of our caterpillars are moss. So moss actually really drive the food web a lot more than butterflies do. Um, and there's actually a really good book for our area. It wouldn't be good for your area, but it's called um, uh, Gardening for Moss. It's a, it's a, to me, it's a regional guide for what to plant to really support um, wildlife um, written by the Jim McCormick, who is the, uh, he's, he does a column in the Columbus Dispatch, the nature column. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, he's considered one of the best photographers in Ohio, wildlife photographers. The name sounds familiar, I might yeah. know. Um, that's um, funny because if you've seen a book, Guardian for Moss, most people would be like, why do I want moss? I get my clothes and my son. Exactly. <laughs> well, and you know, moss gets such a bad rap because you think about movies and how they're portrayed, you know, Mothman and, you know, there's, a, they're always, you know, Silence of the Lambs had a moth that they depicted there. They, it's, they get, they, they get an unfair bad rap, you know. Um, there many of them are quite beautiful, even the small ones, like really tiny moss. If you get to see them, you know, with a little bit of magnification, they're, they're incredibly beautiful. Um, the ones that we've been releasing here, we just released Luna's, uh, Cecropia, and Polyphemus this year. Um, just, they look like works of art. Oh, wow. And then there's also some that are dayfly. I mean, you can, you can plant uh, plants that, that you can easily see them on at night that moths really like. Uh, white flowers are really good for um, being able to see the detail of the moth when they're on it, nectaring at night. Um, Jim's kind of been working on something about like a moth garden, you know, um, uh, or moon garden, I think is what he's calling it, a moon garden for moths, because you can go out at night and see them. I know I used to have detoura plants, you know, those great big white trumpety looking things that are, that are hallucinogenic. I used to have some of those growing and I would go out at night and see moths on them. So it was really kind of cool to see. And then there's also some day flying moths that are absolutely beautiful. Have you ever seen the hummingbird clearwing moths? I don't think so. They are, the first time I saw one was probably about 15 years ago. I was sitting on a patio and I looked over and there were three or four of them. They were working this uh, wild uh, bee bomb. And I was like, is that a baby hummingbird or is it a moth or is it the two had a baby? What is that? <laughs> I could not figure out what it was, but it was a, it was a day flying hummingbird clear wing moth. The, the wings are clear and they hover just like a hummingbird and they nectar just like a hummingbird. So yeah, they're, they're incredible. Look them up. 
Yeah, those are really neat. And, you know, and just what, when people start to understand, you know, what, what do you need to do to bring those into your yard, then most people want to do it. Cause I mean, if you're going to garden, why not have your plants come alive with, with stuff like that, you know? Um, but yeah, they, their host plants are viburnums, you know, native, native viburnums, um, which would be like, there's a bunch of native viburnums. I try to grow as many of them every year as I can. Um, there's cranberry viburnum, nannyberry viburnum, nannyberry viburnum has, um, edible berries that are just delicious. I, that's my favorite seed to clean <laughs> because I just eat the seeds and, and, and eat the berries and, and, you know, clean the seeds out. Um, there's, um, arrowwood viburnum, there's, um, black hall viburnum. There's actually a new one that I'm going to be growing next year. Well, it might be the year after, cause I think it, it can be a two-year germination. I'm going to try to trick it into thinking it went through two winters before, before next spring, <clears throat> but there's definitely lots of different options there. And then there's a couple other plants that are not in the viburnum family that feed the, the, um, snowberry clearwing moth, which is a very similar day flying moth with clear, clear wings that hovers like a, a butterfly or like, like a hummingbird. Um, and they feed on coral berry and, and snowberry. So those are really neat to support. And then their favorite nectaring plant is the wild bee balm. You know, they love those. They're like little hummingbirds. They like the little tiny tubular flowers, but those definitely seem to be their favorites. Um, and another thing that insects do too, um, you know, they, no insect, you know, exists in a, in a vacuum. Insects also help to keep, you know, other pest insects in, in balance, you know. I've, I've actually had aphids on my milkweed the last couple of years and, and I just watch them. I don't do anything about it because I think, you know what, if, if there's an excess of something somewhere, if you just are patient, nature corrects it. And then last fall, when I was turning over some stuff in one of my beds to plant something, I had to move some leaves aside. I turned over the leaves and there was about 30 eight or um, what is it called? An eight spotted lady beetle. So they look kind of pink with black spots on them so beautiful and they're native to our area and this year sure enough i thought i am not going to have aphids next year i do not have any problems with aphids now there's actually i see the little larva and the ladybug larva are interesting they're part of what is usually on milkweed i know a lot of people will think i got to kill everything on the milkweed so the monarchs can have it um so i hear people doing that and i try to discourage that because there's so many different things we don't understand about how all these things are connected and ladybug larvae, they look like little teeny tiny alligators. Oh, wow. Um, and they're, they're walking around on the milkweed um, eating aphids. They eat aphids even in their, in their larval phase. But, you know, just understanding all that. Um, and there was a study too um, done where monarchs actually do better in a more diverse ecosystem than they do when there's less other species, you know, around them. And that kind of makes sense because, you know, it's all about balance. Oh yeah, sure. So yeah, yeah if any, any kind of excess, you know, just know that if you've got an excess of some kind of bug, there's a predator right behind it. Just be patient. Don't pull out the spray and kill things. Tent caterpillars. That's another thing. People feel like they have to kill those, but migrating birds, you know, those, those tent caterpillars show up right around the time. A lot of birds start their migration and think about how much more, efficient you can be at eating caterpillars if you can break into one of those tents and just eat like 30 40 of them at one time you know so migrating birds rely heavily on tent caterpillars and tent caterpillars are so late in the season that they're not going to kill your plant the leaves have done the job of feeding the root system through the summer 
And even if you know the leaves are going to fall off in not too long a time by the time those show up, so there, it's it's not going to hurt anything. The plant will recover and look completely normal the next year. So that's another thing that I like to try to educate people about is just you know just leave them alone. Let the birds have those. Don't spray them. You know, let nature yeah. do its thing. And that's hard to do because we've been taught all you know get rid of the bugs. The bugs are killing you know mm -hmm. your trees, your plants. So, um, so education is very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was just talking to, I don't, I probably shouldn't say the name, but I was talking to a supply, a supplier of a major chain of, um, nurseries around here. And I was, cause I, I get people that sometimes come to me for larger plants and, you know, I don't have larger plants. I don't really like the idea of growing larger plants because, the longer they're in a container, the more compromised the root system. And there's just a lot of inputs you have to put into keeping a plant healthy in a pot for that long. And, and it's almost impossible to do naturally, which is what I, you know, that's how I uh, grow my things. And um, I was asking them about the, the, you know, how, what do they spray? How often do they spray? And, and I, you know, they spray everything on a 10 day rotation, you know, because the nurseries. Yeah, at this, at this, it's a, it's a big chain nursery near here and they have a, they have a supplier nursery. It's also pretty large. And, you know, I was thinking about getting some larger plants from them. I still may do it, but I'm just going to have to tell people these are sprayed. Yeah. They, they're not going to be any good for insects this year. I did, I did assure myself that they weren't using neonics, which are like a persistent, you know, they persist in the plant um, beyond that season, but but yeah, I mean, they, they, these big greenhouses, these big commercial operations, when you think about if you have thousands of some kind of plant there and, you know, one kind of bug comes in that eats that plant and just starts eating it. And, and yeah, it, I think the other thing is too, a lot of customers are, they won't buy it if they see leaf damage. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to teach people here when you see the leaf damage, know that that plant is already contributing to the ecosystem. And it, the leaf damage is not going to kill the plant most of the time. Most of the time it's, it's you know, the plant's gonna be able to grow more leaves and, and come right on back out of it, you know? So, but yeah, that's something that I think, you know, teaching people not to not to shop that way, to, to be willing to buy something that an insect has, has enjoyed part of, you know, part of some of the leaves um could take some of the pressure off some of the the bigger operations for having to do i mean it's not cheap to spray oh, you know, they yeah. they'd probably rather not put that you know input in if they didn't have to but um but if that's how their customers are if they don't if they won't buy it without that um but you know one of the other things that i always think about too when i'm trying to talk about how to change the way people think about things is tomato worms tomato hornworms you know, have you ever had, have you ever grown tomatoes and had those yeah. great green caterpillars? Yeah. Um, number one, the ones that are in our area are not actually tomato hornworms. They're tobacco hornworms. That's, that's what we technically have in this area, but they're same genus. Um, but they turn into the, a really pretty uh, sphinx moth that hovers like those day flying uh, hummingbird clearwing moths um, at night when they nectar. And I always plant extra, you know, some cherry tomatoes. I always have cherry tomatoes that come up. Once you have cherry tomatoes, you always have cherry tomatoes. And I always have more than I could possibly ever pick. I just allow one little corner to be like the tomato hornworm. Well, it's the tobacco hornworm. The tobacco hornworm, you know, donated plants. Like you can have them. I find them, I put them over there. And, and in fact, you can go out at night with your black light flashlight to find them. 
so you can move them before they do a lot of damage because they're hard to see and you know they're so well camouflaged to spot them during the day um, but yeah, I, that's what I do is I just move them over um, so that they can continue their process. And a lot of times the birds, if you leave them there, it's just like, just like with the uh, aphids on your milkweed. If you leave them there, birds will eventually start to come and eat them. And they have a predatory wasp that will lay eggs on them. You, if you see these little white eggs on their back, leave them there because that's the predatory wasp that, you know, helps to keep those in check. So, so those are just, you know, a couple things to just kind of think about. We don't always have to get in there and interfere and try to control things or stop something. You know, nature has a reason for a lot of the things that it does. We just don't always understand it. Yeah. When we, <laughs> we moved in here, it was in April. And so after a couple of weeks, I went to the nursery and I bought some tomato plants and some herbs and some different, a couple of different flowers and put them outside and, uh, a little area that's kind of like a little garden and th they were all in pots and then like a week later javelinas I don't know if you know what a javelina is they look like wild pigs they're pretty big they're big and fat and they we we've seen them forever because we've been coming here a long time but they came into the yard and I look out and they're like destroying one took the tomato plant grabbed a hold of it and just ate it like it was nothing they didn't touch the basil but they got into my plants and I'm out there going get away from here so I went out the back door and I opened the door and I went down in the yard and I'm like go oh, get shoo and they just stood there and looked at me and it's because so many people feed them here that they thought I was coming out to feed them I'm like go <laughs> away and since then they've destroyed other plants and flowers that I've had so I have I've got a sheet that has javelina proof flowers and plants. So I'm trying to go that route or put them up on a deck or something because they are just, I couldn't believe how many things they just ate. And it was funny. I put a video on Facebook and it was just hilarious to watch them because when I was talking to them, they just looked at me like, <laughs> are you going to feed us? <laughs> I had no idea that you guys dealt with that out there. Oh yeah. We have deer in our yards every, almost every day we have deer because this is forest. People think Arizona, you know, they're thinking desert, but you can even see all the trees in my yard. I see them. Yeah. We have trees everywhere. And this morning we seen a coyote running down the street. So there's a lot of wildlife here. That's great. You know, one of the things that has, I, I love visiting out West, but one of the things that keeps me from wanting to move out there is because I have that concept of that. It's more of a desert. You know, I, I would miss all the green. Well, come visit me and you will see when I hike with my dog, it most of the time is in the forest. I'd love to come visit sometime. Yeah. yeah. You should definitely come visit and you can teach me some stuff and we'll look, you know, you can help me figure out the flowers and the plant <laughs> and all that. That'd be fun. That would be fun. That'd be yeah. great. Well, you know, another thing that I think about, you know, um, with adding nature, you know, adding native plants particularly, is that <clears throat> we, there's a lot of them that make edible food for us too. And, you know, um, aronia is a, a genus of plants. Um, the black chokeberry, uh, red chokeberry, those are, have berries that are very high antioxidant, um, like higher than blueberries. Oh, and, wow. they're, and they're pretty tasty too. They're kind of like a sour sweet, which I think really is, is kind of, <clears throat> we should be kind of more geared toward that flavor. I think we get a, a lot of, um, we're, we're used to that intense sweet flavor and they're kind of more of a tart sweet. Um, <clears throat> but those are, those are actually really, um, 
really good for you and and easy to harvest and if, and they're to me they're like a nice substitute for burning bush which is a really invasive species that's taken over a lot of wild spaces because they produce this berry that's not really that nutritious but the birds eat it because there's not nothing else around and then they spread it around but but these um, bushes both turn like a really beautiful brilliant red in the fall um, so they're kind of a nice substitute for that burning bush and they contribute so much more to the ecosystem than a burning bush would. And then elderberry, you know, we can use that medicinally. People use it for making jams and pies. Um, and it's a beautiful plant and um, hosts, hosts some caterpillar species as well. Nannyberry, we talked about, that's the viburnum that helps with, you know, it's a food plant for hummingbird, hummingbird clearwing moss, has a delicious edible berry. And service berries, have you ever eaten service berries? No, you don't. You know, so many of the berries that are in the wild, you just don't know whether to eat them or not because you don't it's know true. if they're safe or not. I didn't know for the longest time whether service berries were edible. I never thought about it, you know, looking it up to see. Um, what do they look like? Service berries, when they ripen, they're blue. They look a lot like a small blueberry and they taste a lot like a blueberry. Hmm. To me, they taste just as good or better depending on, you know, when you harvest them, just like blueberries, you know, if you harvest them at the peak when they're nice and ripe, they're just delicious. How come you don't see them in the store? I don't know why they don't do that. And, and I know I was talking to a friend the other day and she said she had, she had ended up having car problems and had to, she got stuck somewhere. She was at this parking lot and she, they had a bunch of service berries. She was starving. So she went out and started picking the service berries and she oh. said people were looking at her like she was homeless. <laughs> <laughs> Like they were oh, that's funny. Well, at least we knew that they were, you know, she could eat yeah. them and die. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't, I, I personally have trouble getting them before the, the cedar wax wings do. Are you familiar with that bird? No, uh -uh. they're an, they're a gorgeous bird that most people, most people don't even know what it is, but it's you'll have to look it up sometime, but it, it's amazing. And it, they love service berries. That's, that's their favorite berry. They're right now um, beating me to my blueberries at the moment. I, <laughs> I have yet to get something up around them so that I end up, you know, getting some of them for myself. Um, but in hazelnuts, um, hazelnuts are, are delicious and um, easy to grow. Um, there's also, I, I like to focus too uh, in the nursery raising um, plants that are um, state listed as threatened or endangered. Um, and big hazelnut is actually extinct in the wild in Ohio. And I'm growing a few different plants like that right now that are extinct in the wild, just because we've, you know, taken away the habitat that they normally would have been a part of. But those are really easy to grow and, and you get nuts in just a couple of years. Uh, there's a northern hardy pecan that we can grow here in Ohio that produces um, edible pecans. So there's a lot of things like that that, you know, people don't think about. Butternut is actually another one. It's an endangered tree. Um, because there's um, something that we imported from, you know, another country and, and it, it's a pest that took out a lot of the butternuts, but um, butternuts are, are endangered and, and that's one that we grow here. The nuts are delicious. They're actually really large and a lot easier to get into than walnuts. They're kind of in the same family um, and they're meatier and the, and the nuts taste buttery. That's what the, where the butternut uh, name comes from, but lots of things like that, that we can actually grow that are native plants that would you know, host caterpillars and lots of other insects that would drive the food web. And then they also, you know, you know, do the phytoremediation of things from our environment. 
give us oxygen and they can also be food plants for us as well. So lots of different things to think about when you're thinking about putting in native plants. I've never heard of butternuts before. Yeah, I, I wasn't familiar with them. I had heard about them, but I didn't really know what they, you know, a lot about them until I started growing plants. So yeah, you wanted to kind of um, sum up like a five things that we could do to kind of support wildlife in our landscape. Um, partly because, you know, we're also supporting ourselves by supporting the ecosystems that sustain wildlife, we're, su we're sustaining our own species. Um, and I always think of it just like, you know, the same things that we need. We need food, you know, water, shelter, we need places to reproduce, and we need, you know, some diversity. We wouldn't, you know, most of us wouldn't survive long if we ate just one kind of food. So providing lots of different types of food sources. And, um, and then I also think about, you know, the, the layers of the uh, lands landscaping and layers, because, um, you know, every wildlife species spends most of its life in one layer of the landscape. So like, for instance, you know, Baltimore Orioles like to be up in the canopy. And that's where you'll find, you know, walking sticks and katydids as well. And, mm -hmm. you know, then there's the sub canopy, which are the taller, you know, shorter trees or taller shrubs. And then there's a shrub layer. And then there's the you know perennial layer and then the ground layer and there's things that specialize in and live in each of those layers um, and then that provides a lot of different um, structure for you know habitat for you know places for them to hide and also helps to block wind and cool the earth and, and make your HVAC more efficient and it's more it's more visually interesting too to me like when you have all these different plants that have different you know flower color and flower time and you know fall colors and you know structure you know when they when the leaves are off like what the what the shape of the plant underneath is like and then all those leaves can fall down and just stay right in those plants they're held there and hidden there uh, which provides even more you know overwintering habitat for toads and frogs and and turtles and the cocoons of you know moss and chrysalises of butterflies and you know fireflies and ladybugs and all the different things that make up an, a nice healthy diverse ecosystem um, you know that it helps hold and hide those leaves and provide all that habitat and then you don't have to worry about you know the neighbors judging you or having to clean them up because they're just all kind of held in place yeah and then also those interconnecting root systems will keep you know the wind from blowing trees over during a storm you know because it helps to keep them more stable. Yeah, that's uh, something that happened here this spring because they had so much water and they're not used to the water. A lot of the roofs got wet and the trees fell over. They had to close a major road down because the rocks were falling on the, on mm. the road and blocking the road. And it's interesting how the environment works and you know the rain and the dryness and what it, how it affects the, everything. A lot of things we don't think about, you know, until it happens. You, do you have anything else you wanted to add? Um, no, other, I mean, other than maybe just, I try to make my website as, as educational as possible. Yeah. So a lot of these plants, I, um, I have a girl, um, Tracy, who helps me. Um, she writes the plant profiles now. I used to do that myself and she does a much better job. So mm -hmm. I have her doing that now. And we, we put a lot of information in there, you know, the wildlife benefits, the um, medicinal uses of plants, other uses of plants, um, and then a lot of, you know, how, how to grow it and some ideas for how to inter, you know, interweave it with the landscape. And, um, and then even just in general, a lot of different tips on, on supporting wildlife and 
and um, caging things, protecting them from, you know, predators, all the different things you have to do until they get established. But we've, we've taken the time to put a lot of information on the website. So. Okay, great. I will put um, all your links and information and the books that you mentioned and to the podcast notes. And thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast again. Thank you so much for having me. I always learn. Have to come out and visit sometime. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the Lively Joy podcast. Check out the show notes below with links mentioned in this episode. And please take a moment to subscribe. That helps others find the show. Feel free to share this podcast with your family and friends. And if you'd like, you can also follow us on social media. See the links below. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time with more on living your best life.